I noticed, um, i got to get my glasses so I can read. I don't profess to be the smartest guy on the planet. I'm, I'm probably one of the least smartest guys that I know. I make up the preaching schedule. This is how smart I am. So last week, the section that Dave, Pastor Dave spoke on, it, the heading over verse 14 is, All Things Possible. That's what Dave got. This week, I get, the headings over my section of, of chapter 9 is, Death and Resurrection Foretold and dire warnings. And I'm thinking, you know, I make up the preaching schedule. What's wrong with me? Anyway, so I'm just going to preach what's there, right? It's all good, and we're going to have a great time. So we are indeed in the book of Mark, chapter 9. We're in verses 30 through 50, the end of chapter 9. So that's 21 uh, verses that we need to cover. There's a lot there, but boy, there's a lot of good stuff there. I'm really, really, really excited to be here this morning to share with you what I think the Lord has for us. Amen? Let's read Mark 9, starting in verse 30 to the end of the chapter, verse 50. It says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Our next stanza, verse 33, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Imagine And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Verse 38, our next stanza. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Verse 42, our next stanza. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. God, you're so good. We're so privileged to be able to gather here in the name of Jesus Christ to learn from you and to learn about you and to learn what you have for us. And so, Lord, we invite you here this morning to have your way with us and give us the strength that we need to become more like Jesus. In your name we pray and everybody said, 
Amen. Let me ask you this. When you grew up, I'm not going to call you out. Just raise your hand if you're willing. When you grew up, was there anyone that you wanted to be like? Right? Most of us, right? Raise your hand. Did you want to be like somebody? I did. I was a baseball player. Not as good as I thought, but you know, whatever. I played long enough and there was two guys I wanted to be like. I wanted to be like a, a guy that played for the Red Sox. His name was Dwight Evans. Dewey Evans is what he was called. And, I, and another guy I wanted to be like was Ricky Henderson. I was a leadoff hitter, and I, I wanted to steal bases like Ricky Henderson, and everything he did, I did. And I wanted to bat like Dwight Evans, and everything he did, I did. They both wore the number 24. So what number do you think I wore? 14. <laughs> Just kidding. I wore 24, clearly. Right? And I wanted to be like these people. I wanted to model my life, what I thought was my life, baseball, around these individuals. And so take that analogy, if you will, and let's consider our faith. Are we Christians? Are we a Christian because we want to avoid hell? Not bad. It's okay. Are we Christians because we know it's the right thing to do and it's the right thing to be? Are we Christians because we want to be pleasing to God? So far, none of these have anything to discredit them, really. But here's the bigger question. Are we Christians because we ardently desire to be like Christ? You see the difference? We can want to be Christians for a lot of noble reasons, a lot of decent reasons. But I hope and pray that we are here this morning because we ardently desire to be like Jesus Christ in our lives. Does that sound a little hard, right? I believe that's why we're here. I hope that's why we're here. This is our outline. There was five stanzas, if you were listening to me, five stanzas in our text. The first one, what I call resurrection repeat. This is the second time that Jesus teaches or talks about his resurrection. And then the next few verses, we read about the, how the disciples were grappling for who's the greatest. And then the third stanza is where the disciples hear that this guy's casting out demons and they're trying to stop him. And so I'm calling that evangelistic expansion. And then he gets into the severity of sin, that it's better to cut these body parts off so that we can live life and, and live in the kingdom. And then lastly, that we are to be salted not exalted until the proper time when God will exalt us. We're to salt, be salted by Him before He will exalt us. So let's get into our first stanza. Resurrection repeat. Let's look at those verses. Mark 9, 30, 31, and 32. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And He did not want anyone to know about it because He was teaching His disciples and telling them that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they're going to kill Him and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask. And so verse 30 tells us that Jesus didn't want anyone to know about this. And the reason for the secrecy and the reason for the seclusion was to escape the crowds so that Jesus could have their time and attention. We need to do the same thing. We need to escape the crowds so that Jesus can have our time and our attention. But why? What did he need their time and attention for? Well, verse 31 tells us to instruct the disciples about what we call the passion or the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he wants to instruct them 
about the passion of Christ. And according to Mark, Jesus' public ministry in Galilee is now over. The trip through Galilee, which is where we're at today, the trip through Galilee was the first leg of the journey to Jerusalem, which led then to the cross. The disciples' ability to comprehend and embrace His death and His resurrection, our ability to comprehend His death and His resurrection means everything to the Christian church, everything to the Christian life, everything. And so He gets their undivided attention again. This is the second time. He gets their attention again. Do you recall, if this is the second time, where was the first time that Jesus taught about his death and resurrection? Does anybody remember? The chapter before. Chapter 8, look at verse 31. Go to 8, 31. This is the first time that Jesus teaches about his passion. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Go back to the beginning of 31. And he began to teach them. It doesn't say he taught them. This is the first time that he teaches about his death and resurrection. So he has the words, Mark does, he began to teach. Now look at chapter 9. What does it say in verse 32? I think it's 32. Let me turn my Bible. Um, 9, where am I at? Okay, I'm one page off. 31, thank you. For he was teaching his disciples. So in chapter 8 it said he began to teach. But in chapter 9 it says he was teaching his disciples and telling them. It's different. Mark chapter 8 he begins to teach. In Mark chapter 9 he teaches and tells. So three things are happening here. And these three things should always, always, always accompany our role as disciples. Listen. He began to teach, and now in Mark 9, he continues to teach, and then he tells, which means he reminds of what he's been teaching. Right? So three things that should accompany our role as followers and disciples of Christ. What is the Lord beginning to teach you? I hope and pray that God is beginning to teach each and every one of us something new. God has something to teach each and every one of us. If you're done being taught because you've learned everything, please come see me. I either need to learn from that or we got some chatting to do, right? What is God beginning to teach you? And then it says in 9 that he teaches and tells. So he continues to teach what he already started teaching back in chapter 8. So God begins to teach us some stuff. He's continuing to teach us other things, right? You follow? And then the telling part is that he tells us some of the things that he's been teaching us, right? So he begins to teach, he continues to teach, and then he reminds us of what he has been teaching. It's powerful. And all three of those things should be happening in our life. What is God beginning to teach you? What is he continuing to teach you? And what has he been telling you? And arguably for some of us, it's been weeks, months, or years, or in my case, decades, where God's been telling me things, and I'm not kidding you, for decades, and I'm just now starting to do what He's been telling me to do. And something just this week happened in that very area, and it's been amazing to me. What is the Lord beginning to teach you? What is He continuing to teach you? And what is the Lord telling you that He has already taught you? 
Let me ask you this. What do you think I think? This is my opinion. What do you think I think that we embrace more? Do you think we embrace teaching more or telling more? Do we want to hear the things that God's told us and he wants, we want to hear him keep telling us? Or do you think we'd like to just learn something new? I think we gravitate towards new teaching. Why? So we don't have to do the stuff he's already told us. I, I believe that. I really do. I'm wired that way. Raise your hand if you're kind of wired that way too. Right? And God's going, i got some new stuff to teach you, but man, I've been telling you about this other stuff for weeks, for months, for years. We need to do something about it. It's that saying. I don't even know where the saying comes from. I'm not even sure I understand it. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. That's got to be in Scripture somewhere. It just has to be in Scripture somewhere because that's probably what God's saying. It's like, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. So God wants to teach us new stuff. He continues to teach us some stuff, and then He tells us what He's been teaching us, hoping that we'll get it. And He's so patient and so loving until we do. It's amazing to me. What has the Lord been telling you? I would venture to say that some of us, this is really resonating. We know what God's been telling us for years. And we resist and we resist and we resist. Do you recall where Jesus will mention his passion the third time? So he mentions it in Mark 8. He talks about it here in Mark 9. Where does it come up again? Does anybody remember? Next chapter. Look at Mark 10. This is powerful. Look at Mark 10, verses, uh, verse 32. They were on their uh, road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And he took the twelve aside, and he began to what? Tell them. He's not teaching anymore, right? So he teaches in eight. He teaches and tells in nine, and now he just tells. He's like, we're done talking about the teaching component. Now I'm just telling you what's going on. Right? I think it's, I think it's incredible. He begins to tell them now for the third time. So that's our first stanza. Let's go into our second stanza, Grappling with Greatness. Mark 9, verses 33 through 37. Mark 9, 33 through 37. They come to Capernaum, and we, when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you guys uh, discussing along the way? I love it when Jesus asks questions he knows the answers to. But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to the disciples, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. What an interesting, compelling, and tragic transition from one chunk of verses to the next. Think about it. Jesus is talking about his passion. On the heels of Jesus, teaching and telling of his passion to die on behalf of others, to become as one of the least of mankind for the sake of others, the disciples decide to have a rather lengthy conversation about which one of them is the greatest. Isn't that a tragic transition from one set of verses to the next? It's crazy. What a great, great comparison for us to wrestle with. And look at verses 33 and 34. In verses 33, verse 33, it says, 
what were you discussing? And that word discussing in the Greek literally means what were you having dialogue about? But in 34, when it says that for they kept silent, the reason they kept silent because on the way they had discussed means that they were arguing. That's what that word means. Hey, what were you guys chatting about? We were arguing. So it's not like they were encouraging one another about who was the greatest. Like, hey, gosh, I hope when we figure out who's greatest, Avery, I hope it's you. I hope I'm last. I hope it's you, Dave. I hope you're the greatest. You think that's what the conversation was about? No. Right? They're arguing about which one of them's the greatest. It's kind of sad. <laughs> that's, our, that's, our, that's, that's church, man, right? That's, that's, the, that's the beginnings of our church. It's crazy. Perhaps far too often this scenario is exactly a depiction of what takes place within the church. The very people, the very place where being a lowly servant is always and forevermore the only item on the menu that the church should be serving. Can I get an amen? They were too afraid to have a lengthy conversation when Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection. They don't even say anything. They were too afraid to have a conversation. But they sure were willing to discuss and argue at length which one of them was the greatest. What a dichotomy. Their discussion centered on the very antithesis of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The world's philosophy is that you and I are great if others serve us and work for us. But Christ's message is that greatness comes from how many people we can serve. The word minister, if I'm a minister, that's the more formal thing of what they call me in the legal realm, tax purposes, I'm a minister. It means servant. My role, my job is to serve you, the church. And I want and hope that I'm doing that well. Let me be clear. Jesus' focus, his sold-out commitment, his top priority, the main topic of his conversations, however you want to say it, was to become a servant. Last of all, he says, for the benefit of others. That's what his whole life was about. This, and this alone, is why, at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee shall what? Every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Because that will be the greatest name and is the greatest name that our world will ever know. And every one of us will take a knee. Be honest with yourself. And be honest with the Lord. Do you, do I, really want to be like Jesus? Do we really want to be like Jesus? It's a great question for us, isn't it? Assess. Take an assessment. How much of your life, how much of your conversation centers around others and how you can serve them and how much of it centers around you? I don't remember the movie. I think it was a chick flick. I'm into chick flicks. I can't help it. I'll be honest with you. All right, there. I've confessed. I think it was like 20-something years ago. I think it was the movie Beaches with Bette Midler. Was she in that movie, right, with 
uh, Barbara Hershey, I think. And I think it's a conversation she's having with Barbara Hershey. And, she, and I don't know if they hadn't seen each other. And, and Bette Midler's got a lot of energy. And she's talking about herself. And she's talking about herself and talking about herself. And she's like, oh, enough about me. What about you? What do you want to say about me? And I remember that line. I don't know why. I just thought it was so fascinating. Like, it's so true, right? We're so egocentric. It's the opposite of who Christ is. In the middle of what feels like this heavy conversation that perhaps we're having, check this out. There is fantastic news in this stanza. Phenomenal, phenomenal, fantastic news. Look at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he's about to say something to them, but let me just make a little side note because I think it's funny. Sitting was the usual posture of a Jewish teacher. And you can look at that up if you want in Matthew 5, 1, Luke 5, 3, and John 8, 2. I think it's, yeah, those verses if you want to write those down. Matthew 5, 1, Luke 5, 3, and John 8, 2. That sitting was the usual posture of a Jewish teacher. So for those of you who accuse me of sitting around all week, um, thank you. Right? I think that's a compliment. Anyway, that's just a little joke. But here's the great news. What's the great news? He says, he, he sits down and he says to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus doesn't chastise them for wanting to be great. He doesn't say you shouldn't want that. He doesn't chastise them. He clarifies for them. He says, Avery, I'm glad you want to be first. Sue, I'm glad you want to be first. Now let me clarify what that looks like. Jesus wants each and every one of us to be fantastic, to be great. He doesn't say don't be great. He says be great. Let me help you find the way and how to get there. And he says if you want to be great, I want you to be great too. Here's how you do it. Be last of all and be servant of all. Aren't you thankful you now know how to be great? Every one of us can be great. Perhaps, perhaps being last and being a servant is actually not hard for you. It's not hard for me. My wife and my oldest daughter were here at the 9 a.m. service, and I said, am I the last in the house? And they actually mumbled a few things, but I think they were agreeing with me. I might be wrong. I'm last in my house. I love being last and putting my wife and daughters first. There's lots of people in my life that I can be a servant to and be last. But what does it say that we're supposed to be last and and servant to who? What did that verse say in verse 35? Look, to be last to who and to be servant to who? What does it say? All. So perhaps we really pride ourselves. I know how to be last. I know how to be a servant. It says to everyone. To everyone. So sure, I can do it to my wife. I can do it to my daughters. I can do it to most of you. Right? You get what I'm saying? I have to do it to all of you. All of you. Here, out there, all. You've heard me say this before. All means all. That's all all means. What about the all part? Who might the Lord be asking you or telling you who to serve right now? that you've been perhaps neglecting for quite some time. The child in this stanza, in Aramaic, the word child and servant are the same word. It's the same thing. And so the child serves as an object lesson displaying the character traits that we are to have of submission, servanthood, and humility. 
Our next stanza, our third stanza, evangelistic expansion. Look at Mark 9, 38 through 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. And Jesus said, Don't hinder him. There's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ truly will not lose his reward. Interestingly enough, imagine telling this man to stop casting out demons. What did Dave preach on last week, Pastor Dave? The the three, Peter, James, and John, are up at the Mount of Transfiguration, and the nine are down doing what? Unable to cast out a demon. Interesting. And this guy's casting out a demon, and they say, Oh, stop. What, they're going to do it? Interesting. When we consider the fact that the disciples are a bit preoccupied at the moment, with who is greatest, this could be just another threat to that shallow and pathetic way of thinking that we are all subject to. Hopefully this would serve as a humbling moment for them. What a great reminder that the Lord is the one in control. It's never about us. We must never make it about us. Look at Numbers chapter 11. Go to Numbers in the beginning of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. And we see this happen before Jesus. And we're going to see it happen in our text here. We're seeing it happen with Jesus. And we're going to see it happen after Jesus. Numbers 11, 26 through 29. Two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. And so a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Oh no! And Joshua the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses, ever since his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Oh, what a great response. And Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? It would be awesome that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon every one of them. Hmm. And look in Philippians chapter 1. After 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you have Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. Turn to Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Another example of what's going on here in our text in Mark chapter 9. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but others preach from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking that they're going to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? What's my response? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Wow. Wow. What a great lesson for us. What Mark wanted 
was this. Mark wanted to show and influence his audience, which includes you and I, to be open and accepting of other Christian groups, groups that at the time of Christ were both rising up and soon to come. Think, Gentiles. Oh, the Gospels for the Gentiles too? Yes. Think, the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, which will be on your screen, where he says, Go to all the nations. Right? Think Great Commission. Think Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the Holy Spirit gets poured out and He tells them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, into every part of the earth. Jesus' point and Mark's point in writing it was that all who, with any degree of sincerity, do something for or on behalf of Jesus were to be recognized as our allies, if not fellow disciples. The church today can be so intolerant and unaccepting of other denominations and persons with different theological persuasions. God help us. Shame on us if we do that, right? Sadly, too few individual Christians and Christian groups throughout the history of the church have followed this teaching of Jesus Christ. But the Lord knows those who are His. One commentary says this. I think it's powerful. It says, that which is good and doeth good must not be prohibited, though there be some defect or irregularity in the manner of doing it. Because those that differed in communion, while they agreed to fight against Satan under the banner of Christ, ought to look upon one another as on the same side, notwithstanding that difference. Our world doesn't need more terrorists. Our world needs more Baptists. Our world needs more Methodists. Our world needs more Calvinists. Our world needs more Arminius. Our world needs more people in this church. Our world needs more people at Influence. Our world needs more people at Kindred. Our world needs more people at Your Belinda Friends and at Friendship Baptist Church and at Calvary Chapel Saving Grace and whatever church you can think of. Can I get an amen? God help us. Let's not get caught up into some of that stuff. I'm not supporting heretical teaching. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to embrace the body of Christ and all those nuances that love the Lord. It's wonderful. Our fourth stanza, the severity of sin. The severity of sin, Mark 9, 42 through 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been chucked into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have both of your hands and go into hell. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have both your feet and go into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, in verse 47, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than having both of them to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What do these verses address? Three-letter word, it's not a good word. Starts with an S, ends with an N. Yeah, sin. It addresses sin. Look at the pattern in these four verses. In verse 42, there's something here that says stumble, right? Stumble, it's better. It's better not to stumble is what that's saying. Look in verse 43. You see the word stumble? It's better if you don't stumble. Verse 45, stumble, and then you see it's better not to stumble. In verse 47, it says stumble, it's better if you don't stumble. The message along with this about hell carries a warning to all of us that we need to deal drastically with our sin. We need to deal with our sin in a drastic way. 
whatever in our lives makes us stumble or causes others to stumble, which is what verse 42 addresses, must be removed as if we were having surgery. We see this and hear about this all the time. One of my ex-ball players, I coached high school ball for about seven years. My wife just told me this. We were out on a walk Thursday night, and she asked me if I'd heard about Chad. And I said, I, I have not. He's in law enforcement. He was, uh, 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 yeah, in the, in the line of duty. He was shot in the line of duty, and they were convinced he was not going to make it. And the Lord spared his life. And, and the next thing we heard, I haven't heard anything different, is that for sure he's going to lose an arm uh, in the process, right? And that's tragic. But the doctors get rid of the arm to save his life. And that's the good news, I suppose, right? His life is preserved, but the arm's got to go. And we accept that physically, don't we? Do we take sin as serious as we take our physical life? Because that's, that's what Jesus is saying. So we have to treat sin the exact same way. We're not to physically cut off our arm and pluck out our eye, but you get the point, right? Do we perform surgery on the sin in our lives the same way that Jesus talks about here? That's how serious sin is in our lives. It'll kill us. In our passage, Jesus cannot emphasize enough that being great requires two things. So far, these are the two things to be great that Jesus has talked about. Start serving, right? Be last and stop sinning. You start serving, you stop sinning. Greatness is right around the corner. And what's at stake? Check this out. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? It's better for you to enter life. Life. Look at verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Why? It's better for you to enter life. Verse 47. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. Why? It's better for you to enter huh, the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is life. When we cut sin out of our life, we're living now. God knows what we need, and when we get rid of that stuff, we are full of life now. Sin destroys. Look at Deuteronomy. It was after the book of Numbers, or is after the book of Numbers. We were just in Numbers. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Great stuff. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. My Bible, the heading above verse 15, what does your heading say? It's the same as mine, two words. Choose life. It's one great thing about our country. We have choices, don't we? We get to make choices. Well, we're being encouraged by God to choose well. Verse 15 in chapter 30 says, See, I have set before you, church, today life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, to keep His statutes, to keep His judgments, so that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. No life. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and the curse. 
so, church, choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Wow, I'm getting hot up here. Good stuff. Matthew Henry says this. Love Matthew Henry's commentary. He says, We must part with sin or part with Christ. Let the idols or sin that have been delectable things be cast away as detestable things. We must put ourselves in pain that we may not bring ourselves to ruin. Self must be denied that it may not be ruined. What a great quote. We've got to be serious about sin, yeah? Do we really want to be like Jesus? We've got to get serious about sin. And lastly, as we wrap this up, the last few verses, in stanza 5, be salted, not exalted, back in Mark 9, verses 49 and 50. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how are you going to make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt and fire in verse 49 represent or symbolize uh, purification. The reference is probably to the purifying effect that hardship and even persecution has in our lives. God purifies us. We call it the refiner's fire. And it's what allows us to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First Peter, uh, Peter talks about this in, in his uh, letter. First Peter 1, 7 he says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And he says it again in chapter 4 in a different way. He says, beloved church, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal being salted with fire among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening, but to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. That's when you will be exalted, when Christ decides to exalt us. We are to be salted, and He will exalt us at the proper time. In verse 50, it says that salt is good. It was good. It was a necessity for life. And it was a preservative. Christians are likewise a source of spiritual life for the world. As Christians, we are called to restrain evil and thus preserve the moral order. Oh, Lord, help our churches continue to fill. It is fitting how Jesus closes this section in verse 50 where he says, Be at peace with one another. Interesting closure, right? Perhaps the best indicator of whether or not you and I are salted in the Lord is the level of peace that we have with one another. Oftentimes, sadly, is the very thing that pre prevents others from entering the church. Is the stuff that happens inside of the church because we're not at peace with one another. You know why? Because we're not serving one another. The world really can't function. If everybody's trying to be great, it's chaos. That actually can't work. But if everybody served one another, that actually can work. Kind of weird, huh? May we stop sinning and start being the last of all and servant of all. 
Oh, God, help us. He doesn't call us to anything that we're incapable of doing. We need His Spirit like never before to do that. Let me close with a little story about a gentleman named Jonathan Edwards. All of us, most of us raised our hand that we wanted to be like somebody, and I told you who I wanted to be like. I believe Jonathan Edwards, when he was a kid, probably wanted to be like Jesus. If, there, if Jesus had a number, I think Jonathan Edwards would have wore that number. Let me read the story. Jonathan Edwards was born September 5, 1703, in East Windsor, Connecticut, where his father uh, was a minister of the village church for 64 years his father pastored this church. And Jonathan was a bright boy. He entered Yale. Listen to this. He entered Yale at 13 and graduated at 17, kind of like me. What? Eventually, he became assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who was pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. When Dr. Stoddard, his grandfather, died, Jonathan Edwards succeeded him at the age of 26 as the pastor. Five years he pastored that church, and five years later he stepped into the pulpit, uh, in, into pulpit fame as one of America's most provocative theologians and preachers. Everything is going on for Jonathan Edwards. In 1744, a controversy developed within the church, within his church, and gossip made its rounds, and not a single soul united with his church for four years. Agitation uh, for a new minister spread, and personal animosities increased. And finally, six years later, in 1750, the church dismissed Jonathan Edwards. He, at the time, was 47 and had a wife and ten children to support. The members of Northampton Church soon discovered that their pastor was not easily replaced. His stature was far larger than they had surmised. And a bit chagrined, the officers of the congregation asked Dr. Edwards if he would fill the pulpit until his successor was determined. With remarkable grace and effectiveness, Jonathan Edwards returned to the pulpit from which he had been dismissed and served faithfully until a replacement was found. And the only parish available to this pastor, Jonathan Edwards, was a small one near Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And despite economic hardship and personal embarrassment, this dedicated minister, servant, maintained a beautiful and forgiving spirit. It was in this obscure little parish that Jonathan Edwards wrote some of his most important theological works. Seven years after his dismissal from that church in Northampton, he was called to the presidency of a college called the College of New Jersey, which is now known as what? Princeton. Yeah. It's a man that wanted to be like Christ and allowed his life to be as Christ-like as perhaps we've read about. I want to be like that too. And I know you guys do as well. Let me pray real quick and then our worship band is going to close us in a song. And of course, if you need prayer, our prayer team is available to my left. You guys have a great rest of the weekend. Sure enjoy being with you. I'm so glad that you guys love God's Word. We need Him so desperately, don't we? Let's pray. Lord, we want to be great because you are great. You call us to be just like your son, a perfect example for how to serve others and to be last on behalf of all. Help us, O Holy Spirit. Strengthen us, O Lord. 
God, thank you for this church. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody say.